Studying Exodus has been fascinating to see how divinely the hand of God is upon it from the beginning to the end. That, you know, in all the major details, we see these great foreshadows of, of um, just the Christian experience. But it's not just the great details. Even in the minor details of Exodus, there is something about Christian living. And uh, I've had a lot of fun mining these things out of the scripture, finding ways to communicate them to you. You know, we have seen that Moses is a, a foreshadow or a type of Christ. We've watched Pharaoh be this type of Satan. Egypt as a type of the world that we live in. Israel under bondage, picturing the natural man. Israel being set free, picturing the redeemed man. Their journey in the wilderness, which we have studied most recently, a picture of the trials that we face as Christians. And this morning, for the first time, we see there is a war. There was no war in Egypt. There was no war at the Red Sea. There was no war upon the discovery of the wilderness life. But once the rock had been smitten, and the water had poured forth, and they had drank of that water, which was Christ, all of a sudden, what immediately follows is war. There is a picture here of the Christian life that once we are saved, we enter into war. Siri, I'm not talking to you right now. I didn't even say anything close to Siri. I'm going to go back and I'm going to watch that. I'm saying that over the speaker. Everyone's phones are going to be going off. We see that once they have drank from that spiritual rock, immediately they enter war. And this is a picture of the internal war that commences when a person becomes truly born again. The Bible calls it the war of the flesh and the spirit. There's some things I want us to learn this morning that are greatly important about the battle of the flesh and the spirit. This war eventually emerges as soon as a person begins their journey of faith. And this is so crucially important because if you miss the point this morning, you will be set up for a very discouraging Christian life. Untold multitudes of Christians, including this guy, <clears throat> spend years of their life utterly disappointed as a Christian because they were not told that this fight is part of the Christian life. They come to discover that there is a fight. Amalek has decided to come to war. The flesh has decided to war against the Spirit. And what I thought for years was, there's something wrong with me. And I didn't want to tell anybody about it because I was afraid everybody else would think I wasn't saved if they knew that I still had, that I battled old feelings, that I battled wrong desires, that I battled 
sin. And so I was greatly disappointed. How many Christians really do believe that when they get saved, when they give their life to Christ, and that God is... God does a work in their life. Here's what they believe. They believe that God will change their heart. We may have even heard that said. But did you know the Bible teaches the opposite? God does not change your old heart. Almost any reference, for example, of God taking that heart of flesh and making it a, a, a new heart or taking a black heart and washing it white as snow almost all of those references ultimately refer to our complete and total redemption when we get to heaven. When you take all of Scripture in context, here's what you find. God does not change the old you. Instead, He gives you a new nature. He takes you and implants His Spirit in you, and now you have a new nature. But listen to me very carefully. When God gives you the new nature, he does not remove the old heart. And so the first time in your life, once you have drank of that spiritual rock, all of a sudden, God calls you to war. You are called to a battle. And this battle, brothers and sisters, is an ever, never-ending battle until the Lord brings us home. I'm going to show you that later. You know, there are a couple places in the Old Testament that we are taught of this dual nature. Uh, actually, there are several, but I want to give you two. We see this dual nature illustrated in the life of Abraham. You remember that Abraham had two sons? And God had promised Abraham a son, but Abraham got impatient, and Abraham decided to do what? Get in the flesh and figure out by earthly means how to possess what he wanted, which was a son. And so Abraham has a son with his handmaiden. And that son's name was Ishmael. Ishmael, notice, was the first son. And then later, you know what happens the story of Abraham and Sarah. God does what God said he's going to do, because God always does what God said he's going to do. And God gives them the son of promise who was born supernaturally and the son of promise comes into the home and all of a sudden there's conflict. In fact, in Genesis uh, 21 and verse 9, this is what Sarah, who was the mother of Isaac, the son of promise, when she saw the son of Hagar, that would be the older boy, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So Sarah becomes enraged and says, throw out Ishmael. Get him out of the house because she saw Ishmael, who represents the flesh, laughing at Isaac, who represents new birth. And you'll find that the natural man certainly laughs at the spiritual man. You'll find that your flesh thinks it's awful silly, the things that you want to do concerning following God. That the flesh mocks the spiritual things. So we have this example of the two sons of Abraham where there's really no real conflict in the home until the second son is born. Now, that these two sons represent the flesh and the spirit 
is confirmed even further in the New Testament in Galatians 4.29. Speaking of Isaac and Ishmael, here's what it says. Just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. So Ishmael and Isaac, according to Galatians 4, are in fact a picture of the war between the flesh and the Spirit that rages inside of every Christian. We also see another illustration in Isaac's sons, Esau and Jacob. So, Jacob has two names. His earthly name given to him at birth. It it means the heel planter or the one that catches up or tries to trip somebody up. It basically means cheater, liar. That was his name. But in Genesis 32, God would give Jacob a new name. And that new name was Israel. But what's interesting is that when you read on past Genesis 32, we have the record of Jacob's life for like 17 more chapters. From like Genesis 32 to Genesis 49, we have this great big story of Jacob is still part of it. And when you read it, even though God changed his name to Israel in chapter 32, the Holy Spirit sometimes calls him Jacob, sometimes it calls him Israel. And when you do a real close study, it's because the Holy Spirit calls him Jacob when he's acting according to his carnal nature in unbelief. And then the Holy Spirit calls him Israel when he's acting according to his spiritual nature and trusting God. I'm going to give you just like two passages. I want I, I, Just two that I want you to look at. Uh, Genesis 45. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. This is when Joseph's brothers went to Egypt and found out Joseph was still alive. And they go back to tell their dad. And they told him Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they were told, when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived, and Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Consider the marvelous truth the Holy Spirit gives us concerning Jacob's death. Genesis 49, the last verse, verse 33, and then through 50, uh, chapter 15, verse 2. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. And Joseph commanded his servant, the physicians, to embalm his father... So the physicians embalmed Israel. Notice, Jacob died, but Israel was embalmed. At death, only the new nature will be preserved. And thank God for that. But just as Ishmael persecuted Isaac, just as Jacob battled the Jacob-Israel paradox, so it is with you and I. 
In Galatians 5.17, it says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So what's the answer then? Are we just hopelessly doomed to a life of defeat? No. You and I read the story. Joshua overwhelmed Amalek. And Amalek is a picture of the flesh. Not only in when this battle commences, but Amalek was the son, or grandson, excuse me, of Esau. You remember the story of Jacob and Esau. Notice, first of all, Esau is the older brother. Though they were twins, Esau was the first, always a picture of the flesh. You remember when Esau was hungry and he wanted some soup? He sold his birthright, his God-given blessing for some soup. What a picture of the flesh to have such little care and concern and wonder and awe for the things of God that you would give it up for one moment of fleshly pleasure. That was Esau. And Amalek represents the descendants of Esau. That's who attacks Israel. Yet, Israel prevails. So here's what you need to know. You need to understand that God has provided a way for us to prevail over the flesh, folks. We are not hopelessly doomed to be ruled and ran over by the flesh. You can win the battle. But how? The reason Christians fail here is because they simply don't take the tools that God has given them to win the battle and use them. And we're going to see these simple tools in the text. So together, when we this morning, the whole, the whole idea is overcoming the flesh. We're going to look at like some five divine facts about how we do that right here in our text. The first thing when it comes to Winning the battle of the flesh and spirit, you must know your enemy. You have to know who your enemy is. We've, I've already said Amalek is this picture of the flesh. Amalek persecuted Israel. The lesson is as clear as clear can be whether you're studying Abraham and his two sons, whether you're studying Jacob and his two names, whether you're studying Esau giving up the birthright to Jacob, whether you're studying the first attack on Israel in the wilderness, whether you're studying the New Testament life of the Christian journey, the lesson is this, folks. Your enemy is your flesh. You need to know that. The greatest enemy you face is in you. And I want to explain why your greatest enemy is the flesh. Because for the Christian, even Satan himself cannot force you to sin. 
Consider that. The only thing Satan can do is through this world system, through all the ways that he tempts us, through all of the things he tries to do, he can make an appeal to your flesh in hopes that you will yield to your flesh nature. So your flesh nature is your enemy. You need to know that. If you don't know that and you think everything else is your enemy, you're going to be punching in the air and, and, and doing no good in the spiritual warfare. You need to know your enemy. And when I say know your enemy, you need to understand how the enemy fights as well. How he fights, how he attacks, when he attacks. Observe two things about when Amalek attacked Israel. One of them is spiritual, one of them is practical. Let's first look at the spiritual truth about when Israel was attacked. It was after they had drank from that spiritual rock. There is no real battle until you've drank of the spiritual rock. The flesh does not fight the sinner. It rules the sinner. The sinner is hopelessly doomed to yield to the longings and desires of the flesh. There is no battle until you have truly been saved. So you need to know if you've truly been saved, there's a battle. And I want you to note that in this battle, God's fighting some of it, right? Like clearly God was involved, yet so were the people. And that's how it is with this battle of the flesh. God says, I'm going to help you, and I'm going to teach you how to do this, and I'm going to be there with you. But you have to do some fighting on your own. You can't just sit back on your hands and do nothing about fighting off the flesh nature that wants to destroy you. You've got to be wise. You've got to understand when this enemy attacks is after you've truly been saved. Can I tell you, that battle in and of itself is an indication that a person's truly been saved. It really is. You know, when I make that statement, one of the things that's always a concern is that the false convert who's going to split hell wide open might think to himself, well, I must be saved because I'm at conflict. Let me explain the difference between a false convert that's going to split hell wide open and a true Christian who's been born again. The false convert truly enjoys sin knows he shouldn't, but he does enjoy it. The false convert despises righteousness, but knows he should desire it. The false convert sits in a church like this and thinks, I don't understand how these people really seriously are all that happy about what they're doing. I don't understand that at all. The false convert thinks I would, that would be a drag to me to be that serious about Christianity. And the false convert knows he should desire righteousness, but he doesn't. 
And so he thinks, well, I'm at conflict then. I must be a Christian. No, you're going to split hell wide open. Here's the difference of what the conflict looks like for the true born-again man or woman of God. That person hates sin. And though the old nature tempts them to sin, the true convert is actually disgusted at the old sin nature. Absolutely disgusted of it. Wishes they could just be eradicated of it so that they would never have these selfish, sinful thoughts. And the true convert really does hunger for righteousness. And because the true Christian hungers for righteousness, there is this conflict within with the old nature. That's the difference between the man who's truly saved and the man who's not. But understand, when you're truly saved, there's going to be conflict. And if you don't know that, you're going to be greatly disappointed. You think there's something wrong with you. The enemy attacks us when we're truly saved. Now, practically, so that's a spiritual truth about this battle between the flesh and the spirit. Practically, I want you to consider this. There is a time and a place that the enemy attacks most often. We are told a little bit more about this event, this specific attack. In Deuteronomy 25, when Moses is looking back at this attack, we learn something. In verses 17 and 18 of Deuteronomy 25, it says this, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt? How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. He came up from behind. Those who were lagging behind you and he did not fear God. Two very important lessons here, folks. Number one, observe that the flesh gains the upper hand in this battle when we are faint and weary. You will find that when you are tired, when you are exhausted, physically, spiritually, emotionally, you will find that that is when you are most susceptible to giving in to your flesh. That's when the the attacks of the flesh seem to be the strongest, and you tend to just give in to it. Now, I'm talking this morning about victory. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the path to living in victory over the flesh. But in order to do that, we need to be conscious that we are most susceptible when we are weak and weary. So what is the answer to that? Well, number one, we need, there needs to be some wisdom about learning how to get rest spiritually and emotionally. Half the time we're so weak and weary because we just go, 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 and and we don't have the time to get alone and spend time with God, time to get alone and get in the Word, time to slow down and meditate and process and pray about, God, what do you want me to do? And we become exhausted. And you're going to find that in those stages of your life, the flesh seems to have this much louder and more powerful voice. And so one thing I want to do to counter that is I want to begin to develop a healthy Christian life where I am 
I am working on building my spiritual strength, and I'm not just weak and weary and exhausted all the time. Sometimes you got to learn how to say no so that you can say yes to some things that are more important, yes to time with God, yes to time away to meditate, yes to time to rest. These things are important if you don't want to live your life weak and weary and susceptible to the attacks of the flesh all the time. Another important thing is if you're, when you're weak and weary, look, you, you need people in your life that, that are close enough to you to know who can pray for you and who can hold you up and who can encourage you and hold you accountable. Notice not only does he attack when we are weak and weary, but notice who he attacked, those who were lagging behind. Here's what this literally means. So he cut off their tail, attacked those who were lagging behind. Remember, millions of people following Moses. I want you to picture it like from a helicopter. It's this long group of people. What it tells us is, is that Amalek chose to come from behind and attack those who were furthest away from their leader. And there's a great lesson here about spiritual victory over the flesh. I've watched it in 20 years, folks. Those who continue to fail in this area are almost always those who are furthest away from their spiritual leaders and mentors. I mean, they're close enough to be part of the group, just like all of you sitting here this morning. But they're far enough away that there's no real connection with their spiritual leaders, their mentors, They're spiritual brothers and sisters who are really walking close to God. And a lot of times, just to be frank, a lot of times it's on purpose. They want to be part of the group, but they don't want to be all in. They just want to lag far enough behind that they're still part of the group. And often it's because we don't want accountability. We don't want friends who know our business. We we, we know what we're doing is wrong. We know we're playing with fire. We know that there's, you know, we know that we, we, there's things in our life that we really need to cut out, and we don't want friends there telling us. We don't want our spiritual leaders telling us what we need to do. And so instead, we just lag behind, show up to church a little bit here and there, have some Christian influence a little bit here and there, but we are not all in. Again, I'm trying to talk to people this morning that want to learn the way of victory. Here's the answer. You get in as far as you can. You get as close to spiritual people as you can. You get as close to your spiritual mentors as you can. You get as close to your brothers and sisters in the Lord that, are, that love God, that are serving God, that are following God, and you get close to them, and you bring them into your life, and you, you, you let them help you grow in your faith so that you're not deep, way behind everybody else, lagging behind, because what we see in that position You are an easy target. This is some very practical lessons about how we overcome this flesh, how we learn to walk in the Spirit and become spiritual men and women. Number two, notice that the people of Israel overcame Amalek together. So in verse 9, it says, Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. We are more victorious when we're united, folks. We just are. You'll find that if you have enough courage, say there's an area in your life where you are truly failing bad and you really don't want to and you really want help, 
You'll find that if you'll get a Christian brother or sister that you can confess that to and ask to pray for you and ask to hold you accountable and you'll, you will be willing to answer honestly and take those calls, you know what? You'll find that you tend to do a much better job beating that area that you are losing in. We're just, we're better when we're together. God did not design us to fight our battles all alone. It's pride that will keep you trying to fight all of your battles alone. And so we see that there's wisdom in coming together and fighting together. And you want people in your life who know who your enemy is. Who is your enemy? Your flesh. If your friends are constantly helping you blame everybody else in your life for your problems, you need better friends. If you come complaining and whining, and all of us do, and you need people to vent to, if you come and you vent to your Christian brothers and sisters, and all they do is get on your little side and tell you, oh, you've got every right to be that way. I wouldn't forgive either. Oh, I'd be angry as all get out. I wouldn't do this. I wouldn't do that. Get you some other friends if you want to win the battle of the flesh and the spirit. You need some friends that have enough integrity to say, hey, the right answer here is you need to love your enemies. And this doesn't sound like love to me. You need some friends who will say, hey, you need to forgive just as Jesus Christ forgave. You need some friends who will say, hey, I'm just being frank. I notice that when you're around this pocket of people, you're very different. And you tend to give in to your old nature a whole lot more. You really need to stop. That's, if you want to be victorious in the spiritual walk, folks, you've got to understand God did not design me or you to do this alone. We need each other. Number three, there is power over your flesh when you pray. So we see that when Moses' hands were up, that, that Israel prevailed, and when his hands were down, that Amalek prevailed. In the Bible, the uplifted hands are a picture of prayer. I'm going to give you just two verses for the guy that's out there just like prove it. Psalm 28, verse 2. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. And then in 1 Timothy 2.8, I desire then that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands. So these hands then are a picture of prayer being lifted up to God. It's a picture of surrender to God and the acknowledgement that God, to win this battle, I have to surrender to you and I need your help. And consider how accurate the example is. Moses' hands grew weary. How often do we grow weary in prayer? We're just like Moses. This is why Jesus said in Luke 18, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. But how often we fail. How quickly our hearts get heavy like Moses' hands and begin dropping back down to the earth. And listen carefully. Just as Amalek prevailed, when the hands came down, so too does the flesh prevail when our prayers 
come back down. When we stop lifting our prayers up to God. Prayers, this is such a simple message. There is nothing profound here this morning, folks. But you will find this about God, that victory is not normally profound. It's very simple. It's just disciplines that we tend to not be disciplined to. If you will learn to pray, if you really want to overcome your flesh, if you will learn to pray when the flesh is coming against you, you will find that you are much more victorious. But most of the time, folks don't pray. Instead, they're like, no, I really want to do this right now. The flesh is really itching, and I just want to itch it. Whatever that itch is that the flesh is telling you you should have, you just want to appease it, and then afterwards, you want to fall and ask God to forgive you. Don't feel bad. That's the way most Christians live. Understand, though, that's not the path to victory. God didn't send Moses to pray after the fight. He said, we got a battle going on right now. We, we got something that's about to attack. Amalek, representing the flesh, is getting ready to come behind and attack the weakest part of Israel. You need to be praying right now. And you'll find that if you will, if you will honestly just pray in that time, Father, help me through this. God, help me to overcome this temptation. If you will flee, the, if you will resist the devil, you will find that he will flee. But you've got to resist. You've got to pray. You've got to be intentional about it. You've got to be willing to go to the Lord in prayer. There is power, brothers and sisters, in prayer when you will pray when the flesh comes against your spirit. Let's go to number four. There is power over your flesh when you use the word of God. So in verse 13, it says, Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Now, I know the sword here is the physical sword. It was a real battle that they were fighting. But keep in mind, God is also teaching us something about the symbolic battle that would eventually come between the flesh and the spirit. And he uses the word sword here, which is also used in Hebrews chapter 4 of the word of God. It says in Hebrews 4 and 12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So we learn here, on one hand, prayer is part of our weapon bag. On the other hand, the Word of God helps us win the battle. The Word of God is the discerner of the intentions of your heart. It separates the flesh from the spirit. And when we understand how to use the Word of God in that place of temptation, it keeps us from sin. This is why he says in Psalm 119, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you, Lord. What does that look like? Well, it looks like this. If you struggle with alcohol and you drink till you get drunk, it would do you good to memorize the passage that tells us that all drunkards will be thrown in the lake of fire. Just 
remember that passage and quote it to yourself when you start to go to the drink and you know you shouldn't. This, I know, people are going to get a little nervous on me now. If you struggle with sexual immorality, sex outside of marriage, it would do you good to remember the passage that all fornicators will have their part in the lake of fire. I'm just, if you want to win the battle over the flesh and the spirit, I have hid your word in my heart that I might not sin. You will find, and I'm just saying, you want to learn to win the battle. See, these are very practical. These are very practical. You need to be a man or woman of prayer. You need to have people on your side that are fighting with you and holding you accountable. And you need to get some of that word in your heart. And you'll find this. Whatever your struggle is, whether it's greed, lust, um, whatever other sin it is that, that, that you that you that your flesh tends to really be strong and trying to get you to fall to, you'll find that there, God has given you a word right here in His book that you can memorize in that time of need. And if you will use that as a sword when that comes up, and you will pray, and you'll, say, and you'll take the word, and you'll speak the word to it, and you'll meditate on that word, you're going to find that time after time after time after time again, you begin to be victorious in that area of your life. Number five this morning, the last lesson that we learn here, it's a very important lesson. The flesh can be defeated, but not destroyed. Amalek was not destroyed on this occasion. We only read that Joshua overwhelmed Amalek. Look what it says in verse 13. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Again, what a perfect example of the authentic Christian life. There is no way of destroying or eradicating the evil nature out of us. We can overwhelm it. We can beat it. But we cannot eradicate the old nature out of us. It's important to know that. It'll help you feel like you're not doing something wrong when you realize the old nature's there. It is there. You cannot eradicate yourself of it. Quit whining about it and learn God never promised to take it out of you on this side of heaven, but He's giving you the tools to fight it. So get some guts about you, get some courage about you, and understand this is a battle. Learn to pray in your time of need. Get some people in your corner that are willing to fight the same fight and willing to stand alongside you. Learn to get some Word of God in your heart that you apply when you are attempted and start becoming victorious over your flesh, overwhelming the flesh, but understand you will not destroy it on this side of heaven. Now, why? Why is that so? Why is this God's design? Number one, I don't know all the reasons why. And number two, answering it in the conclusion of a sermon would never happen. But I'm going to give you three like quick bullet points to consider. Number one, the flesh nature, that old nature is so wicked, it's only good for death. When you understand just how wicked it is, you understand it's only good for death. And so that's why it will be totally eradicated upon death. Until then, it's not changeable. It could also be that this, what we might call thorn in the flesh, it keeps us humble. 
It makes us truly depend upon God. It makes us grateful for His grace. We recognize just how much it's God's grace because in and of myself, in the old me, I am just as wicked as wicked could be. And so it humbles me and it reminds me of how much I need God's grace. That could be possibly one of the reasons. And this ongoing battle, it reminds us This is not our home, folks. We're not supposed to get satisfied here. We are not supposed to get comfortable here. This is a battle, and we are reminded of that. Those are three very quick reasons I can say that maybe this is why in God's divine design, He said, for my sons and daughters, I'm not going to remove the old nature. Instead, I'm going to give you a new nature, and then you're going to have a dual nature that battles itself out. And the, the path of spiritual maturity is learning to live according to the new nature. It's learning to say yes to the spirit and no to the flesh. And brothers and sisters, I've been doing it 20 years and I don't have it all figured out and I don't do it perfectly, but I can tell you this, it is a process and when we will do it God's way, we do get better at it as we grow and mature in our faith. Amen. I'm going to conclude with something that's really encouraging out of verse 14. But I'm going to go ahead and ask our worship team if you all want to get in place and prepare a song of invitation. There's this awesome detail that we find in the closing verses of Exodus 17. Here's what it says in the 14th verse. The Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. How blessed are these closing words. God said there's going to come a day when I'm going to deal with this enemy in such a way that you won't even have a remembrance of him in heaven. Now the next couple verses tell us that there would be battle from generation to generation with Amalek. So here's what we understand. From generation to generation, this battle of the flesh and spirit, it's always going to be, but there will come a time when God utterly blots out the memory. Think of that. The memory. God says, I'm going to so thoroughly deal with this enemy of my sons and daughters that they don't even have a memory of this enemy when they get to heaven. What a thought that not only am I not going to battle the old dual nature in heaven, but I won't even remember what it was like battling that old nature once I get to heaven. What an awesome promise that God leaves us here in the end of this chapter. So this morning, child of God, be encouraged. Be encouraged first and foremost. If you're here this morning and you deal with guilt and shame because you battle a dual nature, you need to stop it. I'm going to make a statement that you need to hear. If that's you, you need to hear what I'm about to say. If you deal with guilt and shame because you deal a battle nature, you think you are more righteous than God. Because in God's divine design, He said and He chose, this is the path of the Christian life. And you aren't satisfied with it. And you think if I was God, 
I would do it different. If I was God, here's how it would be. Well, you're not God. And God is good. And God is all wise. And God is all knowing. So get over yourself that this is the Christian journey and realize that a good and perfect God has designed the journey to be this way. Quit whining about it and learn how to use the tools that God has given you to be victorious over the flesh. You will not eradicate it. You will not get rid of it. But you can't overwhelm it, thank God.